Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 35, Mystery and Immortality, Plato's Fido. And perhaps the men who established our initiatory rites were no fools, but in fact had an esoteric meaning when, long ago, they said that anyone who arrives at Hades, uninitiated and unsanctified, will lie in mud, but the one arriving there purified and initiated will dwell among gods. For it is in fact true what they say about the mysteries. Many carry the narthex, but few are bacchants. And these, to my way of thinking, are none other than those who have philosophized rightly. So speaks Socrates in Plato's dialogue The Phaedo. 69c. This is one of the most classic passages of a topos we looked at in the previous episode, the equation of philosophy with initiation. And indeed, this dialogue is perhaps Plato's greatest move in the direction of equating these two realms of human culture. The narthex referred to in this passage is the giant fennel, whose stem was wrapped in ivy to form the thyrsus, the symbolic scepter carried by Bacchic initiates. These Bacchants are, of course, the initiates of the mysteries of Dionysus, a very popular cult in antiquity, which was notable in that it was a movable feast. While some cults, such as the Eleusinian mysteries, were centered around a telesterion or or other temple site, the Bacchic mysteries were centered on the person of an initiator, an intriguing figure of ancient Greek society, whom we've seen in other contexts in the podcast, such as the problematic Orpheo Telestai, the wandering Orphic initiators, and various other types of errant spiritual practitioners who populated the fringes of the ancient, settled cultural landscape. So the Phaedo deals with ideas of initiation and mystic knowledge. The Phaedo is also Plato's Pythagorean dialogue par excellence, or perhaps it shares that distinction with the Republic. At any rate, two of Socrates' interlocutors, called Simias and Cebes, who's actually usually referred to as Cebes in English, are explicitly said to be students of none other than Philolaos. The same Philolaos, who keen listeners will recall, is the only Pythagorean philosopher of the early movement whose works survive, at least as anything other than a few cryptic sayings. So we have fragments of Philolaos, genuine fragments. And here we have in the dialogue two genuine Pythagoreans, Simeus and Cebes. Or we would, if we could trust Plato not to take liberties with his characters, which of course we can't. We can say at any rate that Plato is evoking in this dialogue not only mystic secrets and initiation in their broad sense, but also the characteristic fusion of these ideas with philosophic speculation, which is something we've seen characterized the first generations of Pythagorean thinkers, people like Philolaus. But most of all, the Phaedo is the home of Plato's most sustained and most famous, and in some cases most beautiful, arguments for the immortality of the soul, and for the soul's fate after death being determined by its deeds before death. The scene set in the dialogue is an apt one for this discussion. Socrates has been condemned to die by the Athenian state on the charge of corrupting the young of the city. Basically, historically, he seems to have spoken too plainly for the liking of those in power in Athens after the disaster of the Peloponnesian War, and in the messy aftermath of that war, he pissed off the wrong people. His trial is described in Plato's dialogue, The Apology, 
and were amazingly fortunate to have another version of the trial by another of Socrates' hearers, the historian and literateur Xenophon, which is worth checking out for the different light it throws on Socrates and on what he was doing. We have the Apology, and then in Plato's dialogue The Crito, we see Socrates in prison on death row, and the eponymous Crito comes to bust him out. Socrates' friends have a plan. The getaway car is outside with the motor running. Okay, it's a ship, but you get the idea. They've smoothed everything over with the jailer, all the bribes are ready to go, and Socrates can escape into a comfortable exile, somewhere else, some other city-state where his talents will be appreciated. Socrates says no. It's right for him to die at the hands of the city, he says, since he owes everything he has in life to the city. He owes who he is to the city. So, having formulated what is perhaps the earliest social contract theory in the Western world, Socrates has set the stage for the Phaedo. It's time to die, and Socrates is ready, but the Phaedo is not going to be talking about politics. It's going to be talking about the soul itself. Now, this dialogue was extremely influential in antiquity. Its portrayal of a staunch, even a joyful deportment in the face of death was an inspiration to later philosophic schools, but also to many Christians. It was not unknown for Socrates to feature in Christian works as a, a kind of pagan Christ, one who died willingly for the truth because it was the right thing to do. In fact, the Socrates of the Phaedo is probably the single most important iconic image of the wise man who cheerfully faces death that we have in Western culture. Part of the point of the Jesus story, by contrast, is that Jesus has to suffer, at least in the Orthodox reading, not so Socrates. As he argues in the Phaedo, if there's any suffering for a philosopher, it comes through life, not through death. But the Phaedo also set up a more recondite cultural resonance, which can be felt in the Western esoteric traditions. And this episode is going to concentrate on these. We've already mentioned the philosophic appropriation of initiation and mystic teachings, and we're going to go on to explore these a bit more in the course of this episode. We shall also want to assess the Pythagorean elements of the Phaedo. Not so much in terms of the perennial, was Plato a Pythagorean debate, but in terms of the way the dialogue portrayed Pythagoreanism and influenced later ideas about what it was to be a Pythagorean. As we'll see, there's actually a bit of both here. There does seem to be some genuine Pythagoreanism, contemporary Pythagoreanism in this dialogue, as well as some stuff which Plato misrepresents for his own purposes. We'll want to have a look at Plato's theory of reincarnation, as laid out in the dialogue, which, again, has some Orphic and Pythagorean aspects to it, but is also clearly Plato's own. And we shall definitely want to discuss the majestic but bizarre otherworld passage that we find right at the end of the dialogue. Only Plato could sum up a long and complex series of arguments for the soul's immortality by pointing out that the true earth is a multicolored dodecahedron with lots of rivers inside it, and somehow make this sound convincing. So, let's get into the dialogue here. Socrates' friends come in, after the jailer tells them that Today is indeed the day when Socrates must die. Socrates' wife, Xanthipe, is there, along with his young son, and they're both lamenting his upcoming death. Socrates asks Crito if he would send them home with a certain amount of impatience, and the friends then begin their discourses. So Socrates is definitely a philosopher first, and a family man a distant second. Socrates insists he is not unfortunate to be on the brink of death, but rather the most fortunate of men, as he's going to die 
which is something every true philosopher should earnestly wish for, and indeed has been preparing for, through their philosophy. Such a statement predictably inspires a chorus of complaints and questions from his friends, and the scene is set for one of the most important explorations of the soul's immortality in the Western canon. The main body of the dialogue is taken up with a long, complex discussion in several parts about the immortality of the soul, including some proofs thereof. We won't go into the arguments themselves in much detail here, because this has been covered so well in treatments of the Phaedo as a philosophical work. But if listeners have any lingering doubts about the immortality of their own souls, they should check out the dialogue for themselves, because many have found Plato's arguments here convincing um, from antiquity to modern times, and through them have come to a surer knowledge of their own immortal nature. But that being said, many others have found the arguments of the Phaedo weak and facile in the extreme. And this rather striking spectrum of opinion in the dialogue's readership is perhaps owing to something which is of interest to us in the dialogue. This is something that's external to the arguments proper, the logoi themselves. And it's namely the way in which the whole discussion alternates between logos and mythos, between proper logic chopping, Socrates getting seriously dialectical in his attempts not merely to suggest, but indeed to prove without the shadow of a doubt that the soul is immortal, and appeals to somewhat misty sources of authority, such as ancient secret sayings and the like. So what is especially interesting about the Phaedo, from the point of view of the history of Western esotericism, is the way in which the dialogue mixes dialectic with mystic authority, logos with mythos, in such a way that what might seem to us to be two distinct modes of discourse, the philosophical on the one hand, say, and the religious on the other, let's say, are fused into one. And the claims to absolute truth, normally found in the religious sphere, are transferred to a new context, that of philosophy. So let's have a look at some examples here. Socrates has argued that death for the philosopher is something to be desired. Comes the objection, why not commit suicide then? We might think that logos, rational argument, would be called for here, but Socrates has something else in mind, namely mythos, storytelling. He says at 62d to e, quote, but I myself speak about these things from hearsay, and I have no objection to telling what I happen to have heard, for it's perhaps especially fitting for one preparing to go away to that place, to consider it and tell stories about the life in that foreign land, what kind of place we think it to be, for what else might we do in the time between now and the setting of the sun? A mythologic discourse, then, is called for before the sun sets on our hero. The verb apodemeo and its noun form, which we've translated as life in that foreign land, both refer to a kind of journey abroad, or a wandering. So Socrates is expressing his journey to the other world, the world of the dead, as going on a trip. Socrates goes on at 62b to address the prohibition of suicide, saying, quote, There is a logos about these matters spoken of in secret, that we humans are in a kind of prison, and that one should not free oneself from it or make a break for it. End of quote. So having called for muthos in the passage just cited before, Socrates then gives us a logos, a secret logos, a perfect illustration of the interplay of the two modes of discourse in the Phaedo. The phrase in apuretos legomenos, which we've translated as spoken of in secret, 
uses the normal term for mystic secrets or privileged initiatory knowledge, aporretos, that which is not allowed to be spoken to non-initiates. So this is privileged initiatic wisdom, and Socrates is using it as his authority for asserting that one should not kill oneself, even though death is good. Again, at 63c, when Socrates speaks of his belief that the soul has good things in store for it after death, and that these will be especially good for the dead philosopher, he cites an ancient unnamed authority, quote, And so, because of this, I am not only not disturbed, I am even full of good hope that there is something for those who have died, and, as was said long ago, something much better for the good than for the wicked, end of quote. We cited the equation of the philosophic life with Bacchic initiation at 69c right at the beginning of this episode. As we've seen in earlier episodes on the mysteries, one of the most common features of these rites was that they prepared the initiand for death by ritually putting him or her through death before his or her real death, a kind of trial run or dress rehearsal, ritualized dress rehearsal for death. Socrates here links this to the philosopher's practice of philosophy which, he says, is nothing other than a long preparation for death. This is what, what philosophers study. They study dying. At 70c in the Phaedo, we're introduced to the doctrine of reincarnation with another palaios logos, or ancient tradition. Quote, There is a certain ancient saying, as we recall, that they, that is, the souls, the souls of the dead, go there, that is, Hades, from here and arrive back here again and are born from the dead. End of quote. Again and again in these passages, you will note we are intrigued, but we are not being won over by arguments. Socrates is doing something else here. These passages, these little references to mystic wisdom which I've taken out of the context of the dialogue, I should emphasize, occur within long passages of dialectic. So he's using these as starting points for chains of argumentation which are actually based in logic and manipulation of first principles and consideration of reality in a what we think of as a more traditionally philosophic way. But these passages themselves are something else. So if one approaches the Phaedo looking for mathematical logic, for a kind of rigorous Cartesian proof of immortality from first principles, one will feel cheated, because Socrates falls back on all these unnamed sources of authority at crucial moments when he has some serious explaining to do. If, however, one reads the dialogue with an ear tuned to the nuances of ancient religious life, and particularly to the kinds of philosophico-religious thinking on immortality and reincarnation which we've encountered in the Pythagorean and Orphic traditions, or if one reads the dialogue through the eyes of someone like Marsilio Ficino in the Renaissance, whose understanding of Christianity is very much influenced by a consciousness that there are, as it were, mysteria, and that there is an ancient tradition which preserves these mysteria, which is, in fact, perennial tradition of which Christianity is part. Reading the dialogue through these type of eyes, the picture changes completely. Socrates, by this reading, is in fact referring the reader to genuine divine sources of authority. Let us remember, in passing, that, that Plato's Socrates is on record as a proponent of the truth to be found in oracles and in other divinely inspired messages, and his own credentials to being a mantis, a diviner with prophetic power, are once again emphasized in the Phaedo. And 
Also, the Greeks believed that a dying man had prophetic powers generally, so Socrates can claim in a certain sense to be speaking ex cathedra throughout the dialogue. So one can read these appeals to an authenticating apparatus of ancient wisdom, and to Mantea, as some modern scholars do, as a kind of tongue-in-cheek riffing on traditional tropes, to be contrasted with the direct reasoning which Socrates engages in in much of the Phaedo. But we should be aware that the reading among both Plato's successors and later through Western esoteric reception of this dialogue is that Socrates is referring here to a genuine secret tradition. The oblique ways in which he refers to his authorities, it was said long ago, there is a certain logos, and so on, are due to the expected rhetorical silence in which such references to mysteries must be clothed. And it must be said, whatever Plato is doing here, he is certainly drawing our attention toward some privileged secret knowledge that his Socrates seems to have access to, but we as readers don't. And Simeus and Cebes, Socrates' interlocutors, who remember, are presented at 61d as students of Philolaus, the Pythagorean, are represented throughout the Phaedo as partially in on the tradition to which Socrates refers, but partially outside it as well. To take one example, Cebes has heard Philolaus himself state that suicide is forbidden, as Socrates is now saying, but he didn't understand why this should be the case. And of course, it's going to be left to Socrates to explain this philosophically. In other cases, too, Simeus and Cebes are hip to Socrates' use of the ancient sources of wisdom, but like Socrates himself, they seek to elucidate them in the light of philosophy. We, the readers, if we feel we are philosophically savvy, or perhaps privy to some of the mysteries which Socrates alludes, may identify with Simeus and Cebes, and thus follow them as Socrates brings them to a fuller understanding of the soul's glorious fate after death. In other words, Plato is playing with the idea of exclusion of knowledge, the idea of a, an inner circle, and whether we as readers decide that we are in the inner circle with, with Socrates, or perhaps halfway there as sympathetic readers, or completely outside the circle in which Socrates seems to feel at home, is sort of up to us as interpreters. And if we are esoteric readers, we are most likely to find common ground with Socrates as part of the inner circle. As well as the topos of the half-revealed secret, the mystic source of wisdom as authority, which is cited but not fully revealed, another mystic theme, that of purification, plays a major role in this dialogue. In one of the passages which are a mainstay for the common reading of Plato as a kind of body-soul dualist, Socrates elaborately argues for a separation between the two principles of body and soul in terms of purification, sometimes with explicit initiatic overtones. Attachment to the body is defilement, and separation from it and attachment to the invisible realities of eternal truth, and these are our friends, the forms such as good, beauty, and so on, this is purification. And we have a further element of mystic discourse here in that this purification, and remember, purification had a strictly concrete ritual meaning in the context of Greek religion. It was a kind of rite you did to wash away symbolic pollution, which excluded you from religious practice. This purification determines the fate of the soul in the afterlife. The philosophic soul will dwell with gods in the afterlife. Indeed, we see in the final myth of the Phaedo that it may even escape the round of reincarnation altogether. 
and go someplace wholly other to dwell with high gods, whose exact nature is left unsaid. But more on that anon. What about this sort of karmic theory, this idea that the care of one's soul in this life determines its fate in the next? We've encountered such a theory already in this podcast, in the earliest sources we possess on Pythagoreanism, or rather we've encountered a theory of human and animal metempsychosis in early Pythagoreanism, or actually attributed to Pythagoras himself, alongside the idea that a special fate in the afterlife is reserved for initiates. So if we put two and two together, which we're probably justified in doing, we can say that Pythagoras taught a theory of metempsychosis which most probably had a moral side to it, some element of the actions in this life determining the fate of the human in the next phase of existence. We've seen too in the case of the so-called Orphic Lamellae, evidence for a ritualistic approach to these matters well into Plato's day. Presumably, one equipped dead bodies with little instruction manuals written on gold leaves so that they would make the right choices in Hades. Take the correct fork in the path and don't drink from the waters of forgetfulness and get a better deal in their next existence. Now, usually when we talk about Pythagorean materials in Plato, we have to keep an enormous sack of salt close at hand in case we need to take a large number of grains of salt. Remember, Plato is often better seen as a creator of what would become the Pythagorean tradition rather than a member of any such tradition. His comments in the dialogues tend very much to influence what later tradition thinks of the Pythagoreans, but our sources suggest that they are to be located fundamentally in Plato's thought, rather than in the thought of the Pythagoreans themselves, and we've seen this in previous episodes. But we should not allow this rightly cautious reading of the history of ideas to blind us to cases where Plato really does seem to be playing with genuine Pythagorean tradition, and the theory of metempsychosis in the Phaedo is undoubtedly one of these places. What Socrates seems to be doing in the Phaedo is taking on board Pythagorean theories of death and rebirth, as well as ideas found in the religious movements we know somewhat imprecisely as Orphic, which, as we've seen in our Orphic episode, themselves contained an admixture of Bachic and Pythagorean elements in various proportions. He's taking these materials, but giving them a fully philosophized interpretation. No rituals are needed, or rather, true philosophy is the only ritual that matters. It is by consorting with the forms that the soul is purified and attains to a better life in its next incarnation. Now, the section of the dialogue on the care of the soul, Epimelea Psyches, deserves special attention. Here's what happens when you die. The soul takes with it to the next world its education and nurture. So, as we've said, what you do in this life determines the outcome. The personal daimon, which each person has from birth, leads the disembodied soul to a place where, where gather the souls of the newly dead. Then the souls are judged and depart, each with a guide. These guide figures we've seen before in the myth of Ur, and we are again given no hint as to their nature just their function of leading souls to their allotted places. The souls then receive their just deserts, punishment in some cases, rewards in others. And after many long spans of time, periodoi, which can mean periods of time, as in English, but can also mean orbits. And so this might be read as more cosmic cyclical theory from Plato, as we've seen in 
discussions of other dialogues like the Timaeus, the Republic, and the Phaedrus. In other words, Plato thought that the reincarnation cycle was very much governed by the celestial movements like a giant clock. After many long periodoi, the souls are led back by another guide, back to the gathering place. Now, Socrates refers to the path in the underworld in this context, stating that it has many forks and windings along the way. Now, this is a reference, seemingly, to Orphic doctrine. Now, how does he know this? He says, quote, This I say based on sacred rites and ceremonies here on earth. So, we know this because the mysteries tell us that it's the case. And while we cannot really say for sure what kind of sacred rites are meant here, or even if it's a reference to initiatory rites, the safe money is on something of a mystery called nature, and probably something with a touch of the Orphic tradition about it. Now, evil souls, when they arrive at the gathering place, to get back to our narrative, these evil souls are shunned by the others, but good souls go to their proper dwelling and... And... It's time for another Socratic swerve. Socrates, at this point, switches register, and we're suddenly no longer describing the fate of the souls after death, exactly, but rather engaging in otherworld geography. Quote, There are many and marvelous regions of the earth, and she herself is not how those who are accustomed to speak about the earth say she is, either in size or in nature, as I have been persuaded by a certain someone. Again, we're privy here to knowledge, which Socrates attained through some form of initiated teaching, but he won't tell us what. And there follows a fascinating final myth, which tells us three main things about the earth in its true form, each one stranger and more provoking than the last. And in the process, we seem to move from a kind of basic scientific cosmological sphere. So, you know, Socrates talking about what the earth is actually like and how the the stars and planets work, and that sort of thing, to a pure otherworld craziness. So it's like as the mythos about the Earth progresses, we're getting further and further from the Earth that we humans know and love in our daily lives and into some kind of uh, visionary zone, altogether different, but somehow the essence of this world, or maybe not. First of all, Socrates tells us the Earth is round and lies at the center of the cosmos, so it needs nothing to keep it there. Since the stuff of the universe is uniform, there's no reason for the Earth to move, so it's natural that it just stays still. So here we have Socrates laying his money on, firstly, on a geocentric cosmos, and seemingly, secondly, answering some objection, which was current in Plato's time, as to why the Earth should remain stable and not go spinning off somewhere, or something like that. Okay, great. But how did we end up considering this kind of cosmological question anyway? We were talking about the fate of good and bad souls after death. We never really find out because Socrates moves on to his second point. This is that the Earth is really, really big, much bigger than most people think. We Mediterranean dwellers are like frogs or ants around a pond, and there are many more such ponds throughout the world. Right on, Socrates, we might think. What an admirably modern knowledge of geography you seem to have. You understand that the Earth is much, much bigger than what was available to geographers of your time. But wait for it. Socrates then goes on to state that the Earth is in fact riddled with enormous caverns, which are full of misty air and vapors and waters, while the heavens are full of the element Aether, 
which in the language of Plato's time and his predecessors indicates a shining, heavenly, clear atmosphere. So this is what we would call air in modern times, but the Greek word air, up until at least Aristotle, seems to mean something much more dense and misty, while aether refers to what we mean by air in modern terms. So it suddenly turns out that we humans are not living on the surface of the earth at all, but within the hollows with all the mist and the water inside the earth. We're like people living beneath the sea. And there follows from 109c to 110b a sort of mini allegory of the cave, using life underwater as the cave side of the allegory, and life on land in the full light of the heavenly ether as the awakening to reality part of the allegory. So Socrates is speaking metaphorically here, we say with a sigh of relief. We're not to take this weird stuff about caverns inside the earth seriously, are we? Well, here comes Socrates' third major point. The earth beneath heaven, and I think we are to take this as referring to the true earth, as opposed to the subterranean caverns that we live in or whatever else we, he might mean. This is the earth whose surface lies beneath the aether. The earth beneath heaven, if viewed from above, is like those balls made out of 12 pieces of leather. And each piece is a different color, and all the colors are more bright and vivid than the colors here, and there are more of them than the colors here. The true earth, then, is a shining, multicolored dodecahedron. Obvious, really, when you stop to think about it. Here's our friend, the dodecahedron again. The fifth platonic solid, which, as alert listeners will recall from our episode on the Timaeus, is never named in the Timaeus, but referred to mysteriously as a fifth solid, which the god used in the construction of the world. Well, here we see Plato riffing on the same theme again. Again, not naming the solid so much, but telling us that it has 12 sides, at least, which is more than he did in Timaeus. Though, what Socrates means by this evocation of the dodecahedron is mysterious as heck. In this multicolored dodecahedral world, there are animals and men, and everyone is doing better there. There are no diseases, and the human lifespan is longer. The seasons are better regulated, and wisdom abounds among mankind, especially um, wisdom of the stars. Humans see the stars and constellations as they truly are, so they've attained to like perfect knowledge of astronomy. The stones there are all gemstones, and the gems that we find here in our world are actually just normal rocks, normal everyday rocks from that world, which have somehow slipped through the veil separating the two realms. So the relationship of this dodecahedral earth with our earth is very difficult to pin down. This whole earth, this dodecahedral earth, is honeycombed with caves and caverns, but these are not the same caves and chasms he's referred to earlier that lie within our earth. There is a great central chasm running through the whole thing, which Socrates calls Tartarus, which is the traditional Greek name for the subterranean abyss where powerful primitive forces are stored or imprisoned. Tartarus is where the defeated titans are thrown by the Olympians, and where particularly noxious sinners are sometimes sent in the stories of afterlife punishment. It's the worst place to go. So we have this central Tartarus, and running off from it are four subterranean rivers called Okeanos, Acheron, Pyriflegeton, and Kokitos, and the last of which flows into the Lake of Styx. So the 
traditionally Styx is a river, but in Plato for some reason it's become a lake. And these are all traditional rivers of the underworld in Greek mythology. Although Plato is here riffing madly on them and changing things around to suit his purposes. Now, all of these caverns and subterranean rivers are not the same caverns we mentioned before, full of misty air and water. These are seemingly a new set of caverns altogether, full of mud, water, and fire, all circulating around in a complex, constant oscillation within the earth. Presumably, Plato here is accounting for things like tides and volcanism in a primitive way, but he may be doing other things as well. It's all very, very cryptic. Okay, now we're suddenly in the underworld, the traditional Greek underworld in some respects, with some recognizable rivers and such to sort of serve as guideposts. But is this the underworld of the earth we are on now? Or is this the underworld of the dodecahedron earth? Or are they the same? Are we inside a cavern of the dodecahedral earth right now? listening to this podcast or but seemingly the cavern account has moved on and the earlier account which was used as a kind of cave allegory where we are actually living inside the earth when we think we're on the surface has now been replaced by a new but confusingly related model of the shining dodecahedral world which is a kind of utopia but it's full of churning fire and water and the rivers of the traditional greek underworld so it has its own underworld all we can say for certain here is that in this third part of this final myth, we are definitely in otherworld territory. And Plato is doing a glorious job of disorienting us. Like in one of those dreams where you're on a moving train and then you go down some stairs and suddenly you're in a basement of the train and then you open a door and you're like, there's a forest outside. You know, are you still in the train at this stage? You don't even ask that question in the dream. You just go, oh, it's a forest in the basement of the train. Okay. And you move on. So all these subterranean rivers to return to our geography lesson, have souls circulating around in them, along with the mud and the fire and everything. Those who've lived well come to be freed from the rivers, and they mount up to dwell upon the Earth's surface. So this is presumably the surface of the dodecahedral Earth, though at this point, who knows? And those who have lived philosophically go on to an even better fate than this, a bodiless state which, Socrates tells us, is not easily described. And this, he tells Simeus, is a likely story, though it not proven. And with that, after a few more exchanges, Socrates cheerfully drinks the poison and dies among his friends. Stay esoteric.